Good to see everybody. Welcome. So glad it's cooler today than last week, inside and outside. That, I thought it was funny that you said it was 150 degrees, or you alluded to that. It, that's what it felt like. Uh, um, today, we are going to continue on in our series in Luke. And so we've been working through Luke's gospel. Um, Today we're going to pick up in chapter 13 where we left off last week. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles and start opening up to Luke 13, we're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 13 and we're going to go through chapter 14 and verse 6. So 13:22 to 14:6. In a few minutes, uh, I'll start reading that together and we'll kind of work through that as we go. Um, as we've been going through Luke, we've seen Jesus interact with a lot of different people through the gospel, and, and he interacts with them in a lot of different ways. He has different kinds of strategies or techniques in the way that he engages with people. I mean, if you remember last week's passage, he posed some challenging questions to the people who are around him, um, and he used a parable about a mustard seed that grew into a mustard tree to kind of um, draw an analogy to the kingdom of God. And then he also engaged with this, this woman, this woman who had been stricken with a disabling disease for 18 years, and he freed her of that disease. When Jesus talks to people, one thing that we see a lot is he takes the focus and he shifts it. Whatever they're thinking about, the, the thing that they're interested in, a lot of times he just changes the subject and doesn't deal with they want to deal what they want to deal with, but talks about something different, what he wants to say and the point that he would like to make. So people come up to him maybe with a question um, or with some idea that they want to discuss, um, often they're trying to stir up trouble and kind of get him into a place where he does something that they disapprove of. Uh, but Jesus, he kind of flips the script. He turns the conversation in a way that points the challenge from him back to the person who's asking the question or trying to get him in trouble. Today, we see this kind of tactic in a lot of different ways um, in the media and in in uh, all sorts of ways. We see politicians and public figures who, when they're asked a question, they'll basically just to totally ignore that question and take it some different direction um, to kind of, you know, avoid something that could get them into trouble. And when they do it, it's annoying, but when Jesus does it, it's good, it's effective, it's a positive thing. Um, it's maybe more like a parent who, when a kid comes up to them, and my kids never do this kind of thing, but Maybe they come up to, to a parent, one of the children, and they have some um, kind of real self-centered or misguided question, and they're demanding an answer. And the parent says, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to, let's talk about something else. Let's take this opportunity to talk about what I think is important for you to hear in this teachable moment. Um, this kind of thing is something that Jesus does often through Luke's gospel, uh, and for him, it's a wise and effective strategy to drive home his point, whatever he's trying to, to say. And it's meant to shift our focus, too, as we listen to what's happening in these gospel stories. Um, it challenges us with something that we need to hear. The responses of Jesus to the people around him, often they reveal self-righteousness and pride in the hearts of the other people in the stories, the people he's talking to. Sometimes they reveal that kind of stuff in our own hearts, too. And they can help reorient our love towards God and towards others, and they can really give us a deeper and greater joy in the gospel. So as we look at these stories today, we're going to see three different kind of episodes or three small stories where he does this kind of thing, shifting the focus. And it's going to impact the people in the story, and I think if we, if we pay attention, it will impact our own hearts as well. 
So Luke, 4, or Luke 13, um, in the first paragraph, verses 22 to 30, uh, someone's going to ask Jesus how many people are going to be saved. And he's going to flip that question around, and instead of answering how many people are going to be saved, he tells them, he commands them, strive to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. And he warns them that there will some, be some people who are shut out of the kingdom who thought that they were automatically already in the kingdom. And then in 13, verses 31 through 35, the Pharisees come up and they urge Jesus to leave that place because his life is in danger, they say. He responds, kind of not even considering the warning about his life being in danger, and he reiterates his resolve to go to Jerusalem and complete his task, his mission there. He mourns over that city, Jerusalem, where he's going to go and where he's going to die for the very people who reject him and kill him. And then in the beginning of chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, the religious leaders try to catch Jesus doing something that would break their Sabbath laws, as they've done before. He asks them a set of pointed questions that really reveal their hypocrisy and their complete misunderstanding of God's law. Um, so as we work through these passages, let's notice this tactic and let's let it change our hearts too. Let me pray for us one more time before we start to read in Luke 13. Father, your faithfulness is great. Um, it's new every morning and every afternoon. And um, one of the ways that we see your faithfulness is in your gracious provision of your word to us. We pray that you would speak powerfully to us through your word today, through these uh, verses in Luke, and that you would soften our hearts to hear what it has to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the first passage is Luke 13, 22 to 30, and let's read that together. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When, once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you, come, where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This passage opens up with a reminder that Jesus is still on his way, traveling towards Jerusalem. Uh, remember back in chapter 9, when we kind of resumed our series in Luke after going through Ecclesiastes, I think it was back in April, um, it said there that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. Uh, this is the, the place that he's going to complete the task that he set out to complete. And later in our passage, it's going to talk again about Jerusalem and the significance of Jesus' task there. But here, as he travels through the towns and villages, making his way towards Jerusalem, um, somebody comes up to him and says, are those who are going to be saved, are they going to be few? Now, maybe this person had been listening to Jesus and had heard this parable or this analogy of the mustard seed and the comparison of the mustard seed to the kingdom. And so maybe he was thinking, well, that sounds like a pretty small kingdom. 
probably not going to be many people in that, in that kingdom. Um, or maybe he was just a theology nerd who wanted to ask the passing rabbi some, some challenging question about theology. Or maybe just, uh, I think it was probably just kind of one of the hot topics of the day to talk about this kind of thing. Maybe like just kind of randomly coming up to a stranger and saying, what do you think about the Blazers' new coach? Is Chauncey Billups a good, a good hire? Or what are your thoughts about the fireworks ban for 4th of July this year? Just something like that. Something to kind of get Jesus to... Um, engage in some controversial topic. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't, he doesn't answer the question. Instead, he shifts the focus and comes right back instead with a command. He says, strive to enter the narrow door, for many will seek to enter and will not be able. For Jesus, the way one enters the kingdom is the more pressing issue than the number of people who are going to be in the kingdom, at least in this, in this context. This response from Jesus, it seems kind of sharp. It's kind of confrontational. And it seems that way because it is. I think it's, it's meant to warn and challenge and even trouble this man who he's responding to and all those who are listening. Uh, the man was asking this kind of general, abstract, theological question, and Jesus changes the conversation from theoretical to talking about them, those people who are going to be saved or not be saved, and instead turns it to you, the word, the word you occurs several times throughout this whole passage. Um, and so he takes this confrontational warning, turns it back to the man, and at all those listening, and I think at us today as well. For Jesus, this isn't just an abstract idea. It's personal. It's about you. It's about all of us. So you, he says, you all must strive to enter that narrow door. And, and it's not just a narrow door. So this analogy kind of has two parts to it. Um, it's a door that's also not going to stay open forever. The master of the house, who is Jesus himself, will eventually close that narrow door and lock outside the people who haven't en- entered yet. The master will say, I don't even know you. And they'll object and they'll say, but we ate and drank with you and we heard you teaching in our streets. And again, Jesus will say, "I'm sorry, I don't even know you. These are tough words from Jesus and his point, I think, is a, it's a pretty sharp point. Um, it's, not, it's not an easy passage to deal with, uh, but I think it is part of the good news of the gospel. It's true, and, and I think it certainly troubled those around him. I think in some ways, again, it was, it was meant to, and I think it, it, it's meant to really say something to us, too. So at one level, um, this is a rebuke of those in Israel who maybe assumed that they already kind of had their ticket punched to the kingdom of God just because they were Israelites. Um, In the word picture Jesus is painting, those suffering their eternal fate outside of the door of the kingdom, uh, these will be able to look in and they'll be able to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all those faithful Israelite prophets. But his point is that just being an Israelite wasn't enough, isn't enough to get you into the kingdom to be with those uh, forefathers of the faith. And this challenge is meant to hit us too. Luke, remember, is writing to a Christian audience. Um, and the Bible is God's word for us today too. So I think there are ways in which uh, Christians for us today, some are in a similar danger of carelessly and pridefully kind of just assuming that we have automatic entrance into God's kingdom. We can live our lives as if all it takes to be in the kingdom of God is 
kind of this general proximity to Jesus, like the people in the, in the story. Like those in the parable here, there will be some among us who say, and hopefully not us here in this room, but I mean, some people who consider themselves Christians who will say something like, well, we went to church, we even took communion. We lived in um, a, a kind of a Christian way, in a Christian nation with Judeo-Christian values. And he will say to those people, depart from me, you workers of evil. Now, let me, let me just be clear. Again, this is hard. This is a hard passage. But what this is not saying is that we should live in a constant state of uncertainty or insecurity and afraid that if we're not striving hard enough to enter that narrow door, then we'll be locked out of the kingdom. Remember what Luke said at the very beginning of his gospel. He said his purpose to, for writing these things was so that we would have certainty about the things that we've been taught. The gospel is not a message of uncertainty and insecurity. It's a message of certainty in our uncertain times. What Jesus is confronting here, however, is a false sense of certainty. Someone can be completely confident, completely certain in something that's not at all true. I can believe with all my heart that aliens exist. But if they don't exist, that certainty is a false certainty. I'm not saying anything about whether I think aliens exist or not. (laughs) We're not going there today. But it's a false certainty if that's what my belief is and if that's not true. What Jesus and Luke here are trying to do is build up a true certainty by confronting and correcting false certainty. National or religious identity will not get a person into the door of the kingdom. Neither will general acquaintance with Jesus or with the idea of Jesus or Um, a life that kind of vaguely matches so-called Christian values. So, again, this is not trying to stir up uncertainty in us or fear of judgment unless we are assuming wrongly that we can just take advantage of God's grace, get into the kingdom without really turning from our sin and turning in faith to Jesus. Jesus does say, put effort, strive for God's kingdom. Like an Olympic athlete strives for a gold medal. This is kind of the the language that he uses here. This theme of striving and of the the effort that discipleship of Jesus involves, this will continue later in Luke, just a a little bit later, where Jesus will remind his followers of the cost of true discipleship. And this is also like what we read a couple weeks ago, um, where it said, be ready, or gird up your loins, literally. Remember, Josh talked about that. Be, Be ready for the master of the house to return, because Um, He could come at any time. There's a sense of effort. There's a sense of urgency to the calling of Jesus for our lives to to live for him. The time is short. The time to live for him is now. This is calling us to to live for him today. Hebrews 3.13 says to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today so we won't be hardened by sin's alluring lies. Dave Martin, there you are. Thanks for that. That verse reminded me of that verse today or this week. Um, if Jesus really is our Messiah and our Savior, and if we really truly believe that fully, and if we've really repented of our default posture of rejecting Him and living life life our own way, then the time to live for Him is now. That's what this is calling us to. Now is the right time to strive wholeheartedly by the power of the Holy Spirit, not just by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to love and follow and serve him with all we have and with all we are. 
Now, there are many ways that, um, just even as Ange prayed this morning, or a few minutes ago, there are many ways that we don't do this perfectly. Every day we struggle with this, and we continue to live often at times like those who don't belong in the kingdom, if we're, if we're honest. I know for me this week uh, and the past few weeks as I've been thinking about this passage, um, it hasn't always been super comfortable to really kind of take stock of my own life and the ways where um, I, don't, I don't display a kind of lifestyle or a kind of attitude or a kind of heart that reflects the gospel and reflects uh, who Jesus really is. Um, I don't live in terror of being banished from God's kingdom. That's, again, that's not what this is calling us to. But I can't help but notice the ways that my life still doesn't reflect him and resemble one who is called to the table of God. I want to turn from that. This passage calls us to, to turn from that and to him. It warns us that the Christian life is not a life of just kind of coasting and relying on a vague religious identity. Um, apart from his grace, Again, this is all of us. We're all workers of evil who are destined to be banned outside of the house. But the good news of the gospel is that instead of saying depart from us, he's invited us in. The next section that we'll read here in just a, just a second, it shows how Jesus would make his way to Jerusalem in order to make a, a way for us, all of us, who put our faith in him to enter into that kingdom by his sacrificial love and grace, those who come from east and west and north and south will join him at the table of the everlasting kingdom. Let's go ahead and read this next passage. This is verses 31 through 35 of Luke 13. It says this, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, these Pharisees who come up to Jesus, um, we don't really know what's in their heart or their motivation for giving them this warning about Herod. Uh, in the Gospels, typically the Pharisees aren't the good guys. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to, to have seen that. Um, but here it almost seems like they're kind of being, trying to be kind to Jesus and warn Jesus about Herod's threat on his life. Um, it, but it could also be the case that they are making up this threat and they just don't like Jesus. They're threatened by what he's saying and doing and they're trying to get him out of town. Um, either way, Jesus is, again, taking this statement as an opportunity to shift the focus, to talk about something else that's more important from his perspective and more important than even a threat from Herod on his life. Jesus doesn't pay any attention to this threat about Herod, um, and he quickly sets that aside, and instead he focuses his attention on his task ahead, which is to go to Jerusalem. He says to the Pharisees, he says, tell that, that fox, that sly, insignificant puppet king up there in Galilee or wherever he is, he says, I'm, I'm casting out demons, and I'm performing cures today and tomorrow. And the third day, 
I'll finish my course. And then he repeats himself again to emphasize his point. He says, today and tomorrow and the next day, I'm going to Jerusalem to finish what I came to do. Jesus here isn't giving a precise timeline that he's going to arrive in Jerusalem in exactly three days, but he's alluding to his journey to the cross and then to resurrection on the third day. He's on a mission that can't be thwarted, not by uh, the Pharisees, not by Herod, not by anyone. And he's doing the mighty work of God. This is what he came to do. He's healing people and freeing them from their demonic oppression now, and he's going to Jerusalem to finish, finally finish his task. So Jesus' face is set towards Jerusalem, and as he goes, and as he thinks about that city of his destination, he laments over it. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is a heartfelt cry. It's kind of like when he said to Martha, uh, back a few chapters earlier, he said, oh, Martha, Martha. It's not just like this kind of real scoldy, looking down his nose statement. It's a compassionate, sorrowful statement. He was exhorting his beloved friend there not to be anxious, not to be troubled about so many things, but to rest in him. It's also a similar statement to later on in Acts when he meets Saul on the road to Damascus and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's, again, compassionate, heartfelt, and sorrowful. The affectionate sorrow Jesus expresses here, though, it's not a sorrow of helplessness. It's not like he just is, everything's out of his hands, what they're going to do to him in Jerusalem. Instead, it's a sorrow of full knowledge and free agency. He's fully free. He's fully free to submit to the will of the Father, and he's giving himself freely and sacrificially to the perfect plan of redemption that he has before him. As he goes resolutely toward Jerusalem, he knows he must go there because that's the place where his mission will be completed. This, this city of Jerusalem, it's been at the heart of God's plan for his people um, ever since the early stages of their history. This was the city that David established as the seat of his dynasty. And then David's son Solomon built this majestic temple there, a house for God in, in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is also the place where king after king turned away from God and led the people away from God into wickedness of all sorts of different kinds of injustice and idol worship and, and re really rejecting Yahweh as their God. Um, this is also the city where many of God's faithful prophets had died. When they came to call the people back to covenant faithfulness, they would be persecuted and rejected. In Nehemiah chapter 9, which is this uh, important passage of the priests leading the Israelite people in repentance and remembering their sins, they recount the ways that their fathers have disobeyed and have turned away from God and rejected his law and how they have killed the prophets that went before them. So Jesus here, Jesus is the greatest of all the prophets. He's the Messiah that all the prophets of old anticipated and longed to see. And he's saying that he would suffer that same fate that they did. He would die at the hands of his own people in Jerusalem. That's where he's going to finish his course on the third day. This is the amazing thing about what Jesus' mission was. It was a mission that must end in his death. He must go to Jerusalem to be killed for the mission to be completed. He knows this. He's, it's not going to surprise him, and he's resolved to go there and still do it anyway, to die at the hands of the ones he came to save. 
Jesus' love for his people is unrelenting. It's unstoppable. Um, But even though he loves us, even though he loved the Israelite people, um, they, like all of humanity, are prone to sin, prone to reject him, prone to assume that they can experience his kingdom riches without truly embracing him as their king. The rebellion of the human race runs deep, and yet his compassion and his love and his grace runs even deeper. Jesus has longed to gather his children under his wings and to protect them and to care for them. So for us today, we're not the people of Israel. We're not citizens of Jerusalem in the same way that those people who were, who were citizens who were there at his crucifixion. But his grief and his compassion, it applies to us today as well. And thank God it does. The, the Jews who rejected Jesus as Savior and Lord, they thought they could rest in their own Israelite identity again or their own efforts to maintain a right standing before God and some and we too we have rejected him in in the same way and we again we deserve to be banished from his presence but his sorrow for the sin against him for the rejection of his of his coming this is coupled with compassion and love and it manifests itself in the grace of the cross where he's headed He'd continue to travel to Jerusalem and he would be killed there just as the prophets before him were killed. Um, But again, he went there willingly to die for our sins. And the third day he would rise and that would finish the course that he was on, uh, the mission that he was on, finish the course that was set out for him. He goes on here and he says, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118, which is a psalm of the final victorious return of the messianic king that the, uh, that the Lord promised would come. Um, and this is also the statement that the crowds of, of Jesus' followers would make just a few chapters later when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the colt. They would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then again at his second coming, those who have rejected him will weep and gnash their teeth, but those who have received him as king and messiah will shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll rejoice with him and praise him forever. This this mission that Jesus was on would be finished in Jerusalem. And he mourns over that city and what will be done for him there. And yet his face is set to go because it's through his crucifixion there that he would finish his course and that God's plan for all the ages would be accomplished. And this brings us to our last little section of this passage and 14, 1 through 6. Um, let me read that for us. 14, 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is, uh, this is another example of Jesus shifting the focus. They don't have a question for him, but whatever they're thinking about, he wants to change, change the narrative. He continues this pattern also of kind of confronting their religious ideas of those that are around him. Um, So he enters the house of the Pharisees and 
uh, it's a Sabbath day. So we've, we've had a history within Luke of the Sabbath day. We know that that's a day that um, causes some trouble between Jesus and the Pharisees. This is a detail that Luke has brought up several times. And they're watching him closely here. They're eager to pounce on him and catch him doing something that they considered forbidden in their law or their interpretation of the law. And as they're sitting there and waiting to see what he does, there's a man in there uh, in the house who has a disease called dropsy or edema. Um, we don't need to get into the details of what that means because I don't know exactly. But he was, he was uh, sick, he had a disease, and we don't know if this man just happened to be in the room at the time or if maybe the Pharisees invited this guy in there to try to catch Jesus, knowing that he kind of had a tendency to heal people on the Sabbath. But either way, what's, what's clear in this story is that the Pharisees don't care at all about this man, or apparently they don't. Um, remember in chapter 13, again, that we talked about last week, a similar thing had happened. Um, Jesus healed a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. And that was on the Sabbath too, and the Pharisees didn't like that either. They had a problem with him healing on the Sabbath. Here, before Jesus heals this man with dropsy or edema, he poses a question to the Pharisees, and he poses a question that's going to get right to the heart of the matter. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They already have shown their disapproval for healing on the Sabbath, so he knows that, but they don't have any answer for him here. They just remain silent. So he heals the man, and then he presses the question further, and he says, who among you won't quickly help your son or even your ox if they're in trouble on the Sabbath day? Again, their silence makes it unmistakably clear that they really are misunderstanding what the law was intended to mean. The law was meant to be about loving God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and about loving our neighbors. The Sabbath was given to cultivate a heart of trust in God. It's a way to rest in Him to, and to reflect His good, good character by resting. He rested on the seventh day of creation, and we too are called to rest and trust in Him. So the Sabbath was given for our good, but the Pharisees had twisted it around. They had turned it in such a way that it made everyone a slave to these rules and these laws that were totally impossible to keep. It was a misguided application of what the law actually said about the Sabbath. There's nothing in the Torah, in the Old Testament, in, in Genesis through De Deuteronomy that says resting on the Sabbath means not helping others. The Pharisees added that to their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. And here, they're forbidding Jesus from showing love to this poor, diseased man. Their legalistic over-interpretation of the law of Moses and of the Old Testament, it directly contradicted the true meaning of that law. Again, I think there's an application point for us here today, too. As we grow in our Christian lives and as we seek to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, I think there can be a tendency uh, in some ways for all of us, to add to what God has told us in his word and to um, construct our own systems of morality. Sometimes we hold ourselves, and I think even more often we hold others to these extra-biblical standards that go beyond what the Bible is actually calling us to. And sometimes we don't just go above and beyond what the Bible says, but we actually develop ideas and cultivate kind of requirements and expectations that go against 
what God has actually said. Sometimes they're exactly opposite the principles of loving God and loving others. Israel had had a long history of just completely neglecting the law of God, and the Pharisees, to their credit, they were zealous to try to ensure that that wouldn't happen again. But the problem was is that zeal, when it's mingled with self-righteousness and pride, it's just as destructive as law-breaking. It goes against the heart of the law, and it misses the point of the gospel entirely. And I think we all maybe have a tendency to do that sometimes, to think that way. This story of conflict about the Sabbath, um, it fits with the other two parts of our passage and, and with this theme of Jesus confronting the Israelite leaders, the religious leaders. Um, often he confronts them and rebukes them for their hypocrisy and their false religiosity and their nationalistic pride. Israel's past failings and their present hypocrisy are repeatedly in Jesus' crosshairs here, but he doesn't rebuke them just for fun, just to rebuke them. He isn't just looking for trouble, and Luke doesn't include these contentious interactions between Jesus and the Jewish people just to make Jewish people look bad. These kinds of stories, they, I think they have several purposes, and we've covered them today, but um, just to kind of bring things to a conclusion, um, just a few things that I think are helpful to think about, the ways that these stories speak to us and challenge us. The first, like we've seen in this last section in 14, 1 through 6, um, these stories can, can help correct a misunderstanding of, of God's law. Or to put it positively, kind of the flip side of it is that Jesus and Luke are trying to clarify what the true meaning of the law and of the Bible is or was. The scriptures of the Old Testament were always meant to stir hearts towards love of God and of neighbor. And this love for God and neighbor is meant to reflect God's own character. And the scriptures of the Old Testament were ultimately meant to point ahead to, to Jesus, to Israel's Messiah and our Messiah. Second, these stories of Jesus confronting his Jewish opponents, they're also meant to challenge us as Christians, as we've seen today, not to continue in these same kinds of sins of Israel. Just as Israel's history was filled with all sorts of failure and idolatry, um, and they would even reject and kill their own Messiah, so too we all bear responsibility by virtue of our sin. We bear responsibility for Jesus' death. Our sin put our King and Savior on that cross too, just as much as those Jewish religious leaders who were present at his crucifixion. And just as those in Jesus' day had mistakenly thought their Jewish identity and religious associations automatically ensured that they had entry into God's kingdom, God's eternal house, so too I think we can fall into a kind of thinking that our mere association with the church or kind of a general acquaintance with Jesus are really what matters. This is why we repeatedly remind ourselves and we repeatedly remind each other and this is why we take communion, to remind ourselves that it's God's grace that brought us to true repentance and faith. And that, that is what gets us into the kingdom of God. And finally, the way these stories present Jesus in relation to Israel and Jerusalem and the Jewish people, um, it highlights the significance of Jesus' mission. And it highlights the wonderful beauty of the gospel. And I don't, I don't want to miss this. It's, it's theology and it's Sometimes hard to get our minds around, 
Uh, But God's plan for his people and for all the world had centered on Israel. But his plan had always been moving towards Jerusalem, towards this moment that Jesus is heading towards. The moment in history when Israel's Messiah would come, would go to that city, and would redeem his people from all nations, from east and west, from north and south. That includes us. That's the beautiful thing of the gospel, and that's why we praise him. That's why we live for him, and that's why we'll take communion here in a few minutes to remember that and to worship him. Let me pray for us. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We don't ever want to tire of thinking of the gospel, and it is a, it is a message of wonderful news and joy and hope. And there are parts of it that are challenging too. We pray that you would give us wisdom to hold those things in tension, to rest in the finished work that you accomplished in Jerusalem on that cross and through your resurrection, that we would fully trust and rest in our security in you, that we cannot be taken from your hands. And at the same time, I pray that we would be challenged to strive to enter that narrow door that you've opened to us by your grace and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Would you make us to be more like you and help us to live in a way that honors you more fully and faithfully? In Jesus' name, amen.